Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. Arcaspeak, now broadcasting from Gable Media. That's right, my friends. Your other favorite architecture podcast is now a member of the Gable Media Network. Listen and subscribe to Arcaspeak at gablemedia.com. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each and every week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 324, No More Hourly Billing, with Jonathan Stark. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, Gusto, Easy Online Payroll, Benefits, and HR built for modern small businesses like ours. FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. And RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and much more at RCAT.com. 
Jonathan Stark, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great having you here. It's really great having you here because there's a lot of buzz happening about you and your book and your podcast over at Entree Architect uh, Community on great. Facebook. We have a big Facebook group there that's, that's a private group. It's all architects and uh, and it's super active and super supportive and, and uh, your name keeps coming up. So oh, I'm hear. excited to have you on the show and talk to you a little bit about hourly billing. Uh, let me introduce you to those who don't know who you are. Jonathan is a former software developer who is now on a mission to rid the world of hourly billing. He is the author of Hourly Billing is Nuts, the host of Ditching Hourly, and writes a daily newsletter on pricing for independent professionals. So there's no surprise how he feels about hourly billing. <laughs> Put uh, it right out there. So uh, I wanted to invite you on because we, we've been hearing your voice and hearing your your. Uh, not hearing your voice, but hearing your name pop up often in the Facebook group. So I'm really looking forward to this. Before we get into a conversation about hourly billing, um, I want to jump into your origin story. I want to know more sure. about you. And so uh, go back as far you want as far as you want to go and share your sure. origin story to where you find yourself today. Sure. So I guess we could go back to 2002, and I'll go through it quickly as I can. The I was working uh, in a big corporation doing um, software development type things, uh, became dissatisfied with that job. And I started looking around to, um, you know, go work for a, a firm. And uh, I found one in Atlanta, moved down there, started there in 2003. It was, um, you know, it was like a 10 person shop, give or take. Uh, it went up and down over the years, but it was, a, you know, it was a small shop. And, uh, you know, but we were well known for uh, a particular software technology. And, we got lots of business, lots of uh, phone calls. The phone was always ringing, um, but we built by the hour. And over the next, uh, let's see, 2003, four, five, you know, over the next couple of years, I worked my way up from, you know, junior developer to actually the VP of the firm. I was reporting directly to the owner, who's a great guy. We're still friends. And, um, and it occurred to me at that, at that level in the organization, I wasn't really doing development that much anymore. I was mostly managing developers, which amounted to one-on-ones and that sort of thing. But it was also like, did you get your hours in? Did you get your hours in? Did you get your hours in? And, uh, you know, a new, new, I also did wrote all the new proposals or most of them. So they would come in, uh, a client would come to us, say, Hey, we hear you guys are great at this. We'd love for you to give us a proposal. And so I, you know, I do an hours estimate. I would talk to the people who would probably be working on it. I'd get them, you know, the whole thing, try and figure out the scope in advance, estimate the number of hours, multiply it by our rate, which I think was $150 an hour at the time. And you'd give them a, uh, an estimate, which they always took to be the price. <laughs> that's right. Yep. And because of course they do, because that's, they have to make a buying decision and they, they have no choice but to say, well, I guess that's how much it's going to be. It doesn't matter if it's in, in flashing lights that this is an estimate and it could be as much as double. Uh, it doesn't matter. They, they have to make a buying decision based on what they see as the dollar sign amount. So. I found that over time, the sort of fish seemed to always grow to fill the fishbowl and you'd use up all your time. You wouldn't be done. Uh, no matter what we tried, we couldn't seem to get the, the work done in the amount of time that was estimated. Maybe we were terrible at estimating or maybe there's some other thing at play, but I don't think it was just us. It's very common in the software industry uh, statistically for, I think it's the number is something like 50% uh, of projects go 100% over budget. Uh, there's another, there's also another number of failure rate that's, that's horrifying, but you know, it's pretty common for people who do hourly estimates 
for to, for them to be too low because you don't know everything yet. There are going to be a lot of changes. And even if you tack on some padding, it's generally not enough. So the problem with this was that uh, I was really disgruntled by the fact that I had all these upset customers. Like I wanted, I wanted to have happy customers and I, you know, sort of, sort of, you know, figuratively went off into the desert to think about this for a couple of weeks and like, what could I do to ensure customer satisfaction? Like, how can I do that? And it took me about two weeks to even think uh, that our, our, you know, our billing model that we were billing by the hour was part of the problem. It should have been obvious in retrospect. It's like glaringly obvious that it was the problem for like, it was the source of many problems that we had at the firm. So I said, you know what? I, I, I went to my boss, like I said, we were close, we're still close. And I said, we should switch to something else. I've discovered this thing called value pricing. I think we should do that. And he, you know, I gave him the spiel and he was like, I, in theory, I understand what you're saying, but I have no idea how we would transition from what we're doing now to that without going out of business, you know, getting killed by scope creep. Um, hourly billing was, was sort of had sort of invaded or infested all of our internal systems. Everything was based invoice, everything, all of our systems were based on a premise of an hour and it, and to be fair, I, I probably would have screwed it up. It, it turned out it's very hard to make a transition from, you know, for a firm to transition cold from hourly billing to any other kind of fixed price model. Uh, but I couldn't unsee the, the insight. And I said, you know what? Um, I'm going to go try this. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is and see if I can do this on my own, which was a lot easier than trying to, to change a culture, you know, with multiple people in it, uh, to just start fresh with a new company where I immediately started out with, uh, I used value pricing. There are other ways to, to separate your time for money, but, uh, that was the way I used it first. And it was great. It was a, it was a giant improvement, quality of life, uh, income, profitability, you name it. it the clients liked it better. Um, there were times when things took me longer, sometimes a lot longer than I expected, but the, um, the, the unexpected side effect was that the client didn't care. Like it didn't turn into this, like these meetings where everybody is kind of like, I was stressed out and like, yeah, my profit margin was lower, but the stress was gone. It was gone. And it was like, it was just, it was like a dream come true. So, uh, eventually my friends who, you know, I was fairly well known in the industry, uh, at the time I'd been, I'd written a book, um, in that space and I was a columnist for the trade journal. So a lot of people would ask me, how did you do Like, how's it going? You know, cause everyone was probably re ready for me to fail and come crawling back, but it worked great. And they were like, well, can you teach us how to do it? So I started blogging about it. I think a couple years later, maybe it was 2008, it might've been around there. And I started getting invited to speak at meetups and, and user groups and it just one thing led to another. And by the time I don't know, like, you know, many years later, I, people were still asking, but so finally in 2016, I put it together in, in, into a book form and that's the book you mentioned, Hourly Billing is Nuts, which is just a series of essays about the insanity of trading time for money. And it, it's more of a manifesto than a how to, um, but if it, but it, it's very persuasive when, when people are kind of like, maybe he's not crazy, you know, they think maybe I'm not crazy uh, and they pick up the book and they go through it and they're like, okay, yeah, I see the light. Uh, you know, that's the idea is to, to help people sort of see the, it's like fish in water. They can't see it. Like when you, when you start, you know, whether it's an architect or a software developer, you decide to go solo. One of the first questions you ask probably before you even go solo is like, Hmm, how much am I going to charge an hour? You almost never think, 
should I charge by the hour? It's just a foregone conclusion that you're going to bill by the hour and it's not even questioned. And so it's sort of my mission in life now to at least, at least please have people start to question that and, and recognize that there are other ways to do this that can be extremely successful. Yeah. And, and you're, you're speaking to small firms and sole practitioners. And so Mm -hmm. there is a huge, maybe a majority that are working hourly. Um, Mm -hmm. so there's probably lots of nodding heads as you speak. Um, I always found I, when I first started, you know, I tried hourly and I always found that hourly was uh, a a monthly negotiation. I'm either negotiating with my client over the hours that I build because they're looking at all the, how could you possibly spend that much time on my project? Or it was a negotiation with myself while I was preparing the invoice, going through the hours and saying, can I really bill my client that many hours. I work that many hours, I earn that many hours, but am I going to send them an invoice for that? So I'm either negotiating with them or I'm negotiating with myself. And I very rapidly learned that that was not a good idea for me and my firm and we stopped doing it very, very early on. Um, And so I'm in the same camp. And I think that software developers and architects, especially small firm architects, are very similar Mm -hmm. in the way we run our businesses and the type of work you know, the process that we go through to develop and create the things that we create, um, not on, you know, not very different. Um, Mm -hmm. so if hourly billing is not the way to go and Mm -hmm. value based pricing from your point of view may be a a good approach. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So maybe let's start with why hourly, well, you you talked a little bit about why hourly is not good, but, but is it really so bad if I am working hourly and and making enough to keep my business open, right. should I even explore an option? Uh, if you're happy and you're great at doing estimates, then you can keep going like that forever. Uh, but if you want, if you're not great at doing estimates, or you're not great, or you're not great at controlling scope creep, uh, when customers are, you know, sort of asking for stuff late in the game that they didn't ask for early on, or assumptions become recognized as assumptions and they're sort of mismatched expectations. Um, you are pro- most people that I talk to, and maybe it's confirmation bias because they come to me. But most people I talk to have felt these pains. They they might not see that the they they might feel the symptoms and not recognize the root cause. I believe the root cause of many pains for soloists and small firms, the root cause, is that you're billing by the hour because it changes everything about the way you think in a client engagement. And if you switch to a fixed price model whatever the price is based on, as soon as you switch to a fixed price model, it completely changes the way you think. Now you're all about satisfying the customer. Now you're all about getting it done as quickly as possible without compromising quality. And now you can optimize things. You can find ways to to work faster and smarter and better. And you can but make the same amount of money and in fact deliver the results more quickly than you would have otherwise but without taking a pay cut to do it. So it creates an alignment of the financial incentives between the client and the, uh, you know, in this case, the architect, because it is better for everybody if it finishes faster, as long as nobody's cutting corners. So which that's another, you know, that's a different conversation, but I'm sure everyone listening to this isn't the type of person to cut corners. They want to do a great job. Uh, They want to have happy clients. They want to have happy customers. So why not get paid more for working less instead of instead of getting paid less for working faster or working smarter. So 
the symptoms would be things like, you know, you just described a perfect one, like at the end of the month or end of the week, however, however uh, often you put together your invoices, you're going down the list and you're, and you're just like, I can't charge them. They're, they're, you know, like they're not going to understand this. Uh, or here, another classic one is that uh, developers will do things, maybe architects do this too, that they feel are important from either a quality standpoint or a craft standpoint that don't directly contribute to anything that customers conscious of. So it's kind of like, you know, I don't know, you put extra rebar in the foundation. I'm not handier at all, but you know, there's something you did something that is going to make the outcome better. But as a line item on an inv- on a timesheet or an invoice, the customers would be like, what is this? You know, why did I pay for five hours of this? Yeah. I mean, perfect example would be in, in design itself is, you know, you can design a project very quickly and get a solution that would, you know, solve the problem that your client is having. But many of us architects want to create something beautiful and we want to take it to the next level and we want to do more development. And so that additional time to develop the project to the next level may be a situation that you're talking about, Jonathan. Yeah, in software development, we call that gold plating. When we, when the software developer, through their sort of uh, love of their craft or their desire to feel a sense of mastery, go way over and above anything that the client asked for or even needs. So sort of inappropriately over-engineering uh, a project to impress themselves or their friends or, you know, oh, yeah, I wrote the whole thing and it did work, but... I wasn't happy with the number of lines, so I went back and refactored the entire thing from scratch, and it, it only took me an extra twenty hours, and, and, you know. So, you know, and, and it had, with absolutely no additional value to the the customer. So it, it's it go, switching to a fixed price. It immediately, instantly, you feel it instantly. You get laser focused on satisfying the customer, and that doesn't mean the customer gets to tell you what to do. First, you 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 know, you meet with the customer. You have a sales interview with them, presumably, and you you come to understand what it is they're trying to achieve at the end of the day. And not everybody needs the Taj Mahal. Some people just need a shed or they just need a pool or they just need to figure out how this thing is going to work together, whatever it is. Um, and you can you can deliver that customer satisfaction in a way that without cutting corners, you, you but also without, you know, gold plating it when that is not what was requested. The example I usually use is like back in college when I had a real, I had this real clunker of a car. It was like a Mazda GLC. And you just looked at that thing and you knew it wasn't going to last long. So I had this mechanic who I loved where I'd bring it in and he'd be like, well, really you should replace the whole transmission, but the transmission would outlive the car by five years. So let me just patch it together for you and it'll be a lot less expensive. And, and look, that was the situation I was in. Was, was that malpractice on his part for not doing it the air quotes right way? No, I don't think so. I think he was looking to satisfy the customer in a way that was not malpractice. It was the car was still safe. And yes, he could have maybe done a better job or used brand new parts instead of used parts. But he got the job done. And I love this guy. I mean, it was great. So I, I think that there's um, I don't want to go into a there, there's a thing about especially with uh, designers. I also work with designers there's this sort of, this probably happens with architects too, as a matter of fact, um, where there's this tension between being an artist and creating great work and being a designer and delivering something useful. It's not the same thing. So if you want to be an artist, go be an artist. But if you want to be a designer or you're trying to, you know, you're doing B2B work or even B2C, you know, 
you need to know what you're in for and be attracting the kind of clients who are looking for what it is that you do. If you're an artist, then you better find clients that are looking for art and not people that are looking for a gazebo in their backyard. Right, right. So let me, let me, let's clarify some things if, because mm-hmm. if people don't understand what value-based pricing is, yeah, we can, um, yeah. let's, 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 let's go through a process, define what, what value mm-hmm. price, uh, based pricing is, and then maybe go through the steps on how you put together a value, uh, based proposal. Yes. Great. Good question. Yes. Cause so far all we've talked about is switching from hourly to fixed. And there are plenty of ways to do fixed pricing in the way that most people do it when they start, even when they think they're value pricing, there's still, they haven't completely made the flip in their mind. So a, a, usually a really dangerous way to do fixed pricing is to take what your hourly estimate would have been, tack on like 15% for profit or admin or something like that, and then present that to the client as a fixed price. The problem with that is it's almost guaranteed to be too low mm-hmm. and you didn't have the right conversation with the client you probably did not find out what is going to satisfy them. What is the success metric? How are they going to judge the doneness, the success of this engagement? And that's the key, right? I mean, that's, that's what makes it different between just a flat fee and a value-based fee. Well, there's, yes, it's, it's important from a value standpoint. I'll just, yeah. So let's get to the definition of value. So that what I just described is cost plus or time and materials pricing. So you'd say, it's going to take me this long. I'm going to have to include this much stuff. Multiply that by my hourly rate, tack on some project management fee or something, and here's your fixed price. That's a cost-based price. You thought about yourself first. You thought about how much work you're going to have to do, how much, how many people you're going to have to pay. You thought about your costs, costs, costs. And then you multiply that, tacked on a multiplier, and that's for your price. That's a cost-based price. A value-based price is the exact opposite. And this is going to blow your mind, dear listener. So, so <laughs> hold on tight. Buckle in. <laughs> I promise it's going to make sense. It's hard to do, but it will make sense. A value-based price is based on what the desired outcome is worth to the customer or the client. You don't think about your costs at all at the, at the outset. You don't think about that at all. When you're setting the price, you don't think about costs. Here's what you do. You go into a meeting with the client, uh, you know, phone call in person, doesn't matter. And you talk to them about what they're trying to achieve. What is it? You know, it, and they'll, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and come up with some flowery architecture metaphor of like, oh, you know, my wife wants to sit in the backyard and have coffee while our kids grow up and have pool parties and, you know, whatever, you know, I'm sure you guys all can, uh, and gals can all imagine that scenario for software developers. Um, we're used to being told what features they need built and they want to know how long it's going to take, how much it's going to cost times and hours. Instead of that, instead of talking about how many rooms or how many pools or how long the driveway is going to be, talk about what they're trying to achieve. What is the, what is the dream state? What is your desired future state? Why are you bothering with this big, huge project anyway? Why are you even wasting your time? Never mind spending your money. You know, what is the reason? What's the motivation? When you get down to that, you can, you know, uh, go through, I have a whole series called the why conversation of questions that you ask to help uncover this information. But let's just take it for granted that for the time being that you come up with some sort of motivation, some desired outcome from that, you can extrapolate what it might be worth to these people. Yes, that is fuzzy. Yes, it is sometimes based on intangibles, 
But at the end of the day, it is measurable in a meaningful way or a useful way. It's no more squishy than taking some random number that you made up, which is your hourly rate, and multiplying it by some random number that you made up, which how many is how many hours you think it's going to be. That's pretty squishy, too. just feels like it's real because there's a formula, but it's just made up numbers being multiplied by each other. So the value is a better thing to multiply or is a better thing to use as a basis because the customer is involved in that equation. Like if it's only worth a little bit to them, you can't give them a high price and expect them to say, yes, let's do it. It's like my car scenario. If the guy came to me and said, it's going to be $5,000 to fix this $800 car, I'm going to say no thanks. But if you could do something for 50 bucks, I'd be totally down with that. So once you, have, once you understand the magnitude or the importance or the worth of what this project is to the client, then you set, I usually advocate giving a proposal with three options in it. So then you'd come up with three prices that are a fraction of that value. If people are looking for a rule of thumb, I'll usually say, you know, if, if you think the client values this overall project, this overall outcome at, you know, a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, then I would do uh, one option at 10% of that one option that's 2.2 of that first option. And then one options that is five times the first option, just to give people a rule of thumb. So if your first option is $10,000, which is a fraction of the value to the, the client, and then it's going to be a $10,000 option, then it's going to be a $22,000 option, and then it's going to be a $50,000 option. And then, and only then, you say to yourself, all right, what could I do for these people to help them achieve this outcome, to contribute to this goal that they want with a budget of $10,000? Now you start thinking about scope. You get to pick the scope. You don't have the client who's not an expert at architecture pick the scope. Say, here's what you're going to do for me. That's just taking orders. So if you, if you want to build a business and grow a business and be able to set fees that are really high, then you need to find clients who need work done that is very valuable to them. And then you set some prices, three prices, based on fractions of that value. And then you start thinking about thinking about each option as like a budget for yourself. So like, all right, let's say, you know, the Smiths, they want this summer house on Nantucket redone for X, Y, and Z reasons. Um, the experiences that they want to have in that house afterwards are like this to a couple like this. It's probably worth this much money. And then, okay, so for $10,000, what could I do for them to help achieve that dream state? For $22,000, what could I do to help them move the needle toward that goal? For $50,000, what could I do? So it's completely opposite of what normally happens because in the sales meeting for an hourly, something that's going to be hourly estimated, all you talk about is the, the scope, the details. You know, how many rooms, how high the ceilings, how big the driveway, how big the pool. And you're just thinking about scope the whole time. And what aren't you thinking about? You aren't thinking about satisfying the client. You aren't finding out about their hopes and dreams. You aren't figuring out what that might be worth to them, how urgent it is, anything like that. So you're kind of leaving them out of the equation. We will return to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect. And while the COVID-19 pandemic is having an unprecedented impact on the economy. Companies like our platform sponsors are still building tools and providing services to help support you, to help support your business and your people through all the ups and downs of our time. Please take a few minutes to visit them each 
and let them know that we appreciate their support here at Entree Architect. Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. Everyone loves payday, but loving a payroll provider? That's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll. With Gusto, Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and management tools to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, you might fall in love yourself. And let's face it, we all need a little help with our payroll process and how to handle all those taxes these days. So Gusto is making it easy. Listeners to this podcast get three months free when they run their first payroll. Just try a demo right now and test it out at entrearchitect.com slash Gusto. That's entrearchitect.com slash Gusto. Our friends at FreshBooks want you to know that you are not alone. FreshBooks has been supporting small businesses and solo entrepreneurs, and specifically, they've been supporting us here at the Entree Architect community for a very long time. They know what it's like, how lonely it may be working from home. They know what it's like when times get tough, and they know that right now, as we all face this crisis together, as a global community, we all need to do our part. So FreshBooks is responding and offering an unprecedented offer. Now, when you join FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software, you'll receive 60% off for six months. That's right, 60% off for six months. Just visit entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. And don't forget, enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section so they know that we sent you. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks and Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section and get 60% off their regular price right now for six months. That's entrearchitect.com slash FreshBooks. As you and your team are working from home, are the logistics of putting together a project daunting when no one else is in the same room? RCAT has a solution for you. RCAT's charrette allows you to manage projects and specification documents online with multiple team members. Discuss products, configurations, outline specs, project photos, documents, and so much more all on one page. Along with the ability to access product information, specifications, CAD, BIM, and the patented spec wizard from anywhere in the world. Charette can help your firm get more done, no matter where in the world you and the rest of your firm might be. You can even promote your firm's project when you're done. And like all of our cat solutions, it's completely free. Yes, free. So check it out right now at rcat.com slash projects. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com slash projects. rcat.com slash projects. Gusto, FreshBooks, and RCAT. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Well, I, it, one of the things that come to mind while you're talking about this, I'm putting myself in a situation where I'm talking with one of my clients and and my client is, is coming to the meeting with a number in their head mm-hmm. because maybe they've talked to two other architects and two other mm-hmm. architects have given them you know an estimate or they've given them an, a proposal. Mm-hmm. And so now they have some numbers in their head. They think that this is what this project is worth uh, in mm-hmm. terms of, you know, 
uh, what it costs for them to get what they want. It's mm-hmm. it's not the same as what it's worth to them, right? It's 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 what someone else has priced it at, and so right. now they're coming to you um, with that in their mind. And so, sure. how do you get past that where mm-hmm. you where they already have a number set in their mind as what what your service should cost you, but it's right. not necessarily the value to them. Correct. Yeah. So they're anchored low against some competitor. Right. I would, the only thing you can do is make yourself appear meaningfully different, meaningfully different to the client because you're going to be the most expensive option if you do this. So if you make yourself meaningfully different from the alternatives, then it's not apples to apples anymore. So, you know, how do you do that? You do that with branding, you do it with marketing. You can do it, it could come from the sales meeting. So you could say in the sales meeting, you know, you're, you're talking to them, you're talking to them about all of the hopes and dreams, and you're not asking any of the questions that the other people asked. You're not asking what kind of countertops do you want? You're not asking any of that. You're asking things like, what's this, how long are you going to plan on living in this house? So, you know, do you want your kids to, you know, these bigger pictures, bigger picture items. And that is going to set you apart right away. You know, talking about things like, you know, all, you know, my, my main goal here is to satisfy you as a customer. This is going to be red, but you know, all that stuff. But if you have, now, I don't know if the other prices that you're mentioning are actually prices. You said prices, but they're probably estimates. Yeah. Well, they, so, they have, someone told them what it's, what it should cost. Right. And, and in my experience, it's usually way too low. Way too it, low. It might be HDTV telling them how much it costs. Right. You know, it, so, so they sure. have a mind, they have a, they have a, a, an approximate number of what they think it should be. And usually it's way too low. And mm-hmm. so you need to to counter that some way. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would I would say don't forget that you can just not take the client. Like some clients yeah, are not a 100%. good fit because their expectations are completely out of whack. Yeah. If this is not the kind of case where their expectations are totally out of whack, in the software world, it happens all the time. And the thing that I coach people on saying is, well, you should reach back out to those. If you believe that those folks are going to satisfy you and they'll stick to the prices that they quote because I know their estimates. I know they are. If they stick to those prices and they'll stand by those prices and not go over, then you should go with them because why spend more for me? Right. With me, I stand behind my price. You're not going to pay a dime more. If this takes me an extra year, it's still going to be the same price. There's, I, don't, I don't send change orders. This is the price. So if you can get that same guarantee from these other people at half the price, then do it. So if you know. you're if you're setting your price on 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 value now, mm-hmm. um, is there a special way? Is there a specific way that we should be presenting that proposal to them to in order to reinforce that this is a price based on value? There are two two ways that people do it. I was always uh, in the software world. I was always um, one of the email the proposal and then sort of dust my hands of the thing. Um, so I, what I would do is I would come to a conceptual agreement in the sales meeting. So I'm interviewing them. Really, I'm interviewing them. They're not interviewing me. I'm interviewing them, and at the end of it, I'll say, I, th- I think I am confident that I can help you achieve this outcome that we've both mutually agreed on is what you're looking for, which is not the thing you came in asking for. They were asking for features. At the end, they're, they're agreeing to increase profits on their e-commerce uh, checkout or something. So, okay, we've agreed that this is the desired outcome. All right, I can put together you know, three options for you, be different price points. I can get a proposal to you by Wednesday. Is that acceptable? They'll say, yeah, that sounds great. And one of the things that I will ask them in the meeting is all of the reasons why they don't want to go with someone cheap. 
you know, how come you don't want to outsource this to, you know, the third world? How come you don't want to do this internally? How come you don't want your cousin Jimmy to do it? And if they answer, if they give me the wrong answers to those questions, I won't even do a proposal because a proposal takes time. But if they have re- good reasons for wanting a premium option like me and like you and your listeners, they've got a good reason, then it's worth putting together a proposal. It won't take that long. And, you know, for me anyway, I don't know about uh, architecture. I know it's probably more complicated, but for me, it would just be a, you know, four or five page document where I say, this is your current situation. This is your desired future state. You believe my contribution. We both believe my contribution uh, would be to this particular portion of it. Here's one way I could assist you. Here's a a more uh, in-depth way I could assist you. And here's like a soup to nuts, done every, do everything for you option at the top level. And they're going to be expecting to see numbers that are higher than anybody else that they've talked to or HGTV. They're going to be expecting it because I've set the tone the whole way. Like I'm not the cheapest. If you want someone cheap, you know, go to Home Depot and there's some guys in the parking lot that probably help you out. But if you want something good, if you want premium, I'm your guy. So the this and and what does that do? That attracts people who have Bentleys, not Mazda GLCs. So you're attracting a better kind of client or you're at least turning away, initially turning away clients that are really low margin clients who might be very nice people, but just don't have, don't place a high value on the outcomes that you can provide to them. That's fine. They can go with someone else. They can go with your competitors. But if you want to attract people who have, you know, that I, I interviewed a landscape architect on Ditching Hourly a couple of maybe last month and he was in a, a really, you know, posh area and was, you know, doing landscape architecture for people, you know, that had million dollar summer homes. So of course those folks are going to have a different dynamic around money than someone driving a Mazda GLC. So naturally they're going to have a higher value for the same work, essentially the same amount of labor, if you want to call it labor, intellectual labor, they're going to have a place a higher value on it because they just value things differently. Value is completely subjective. So, you know, that's when people say price the customer, that's what they mean. You know, it's like value is completely subjective. And if you're using value to uh, come up with your prices, you could theoretically do the exact same work for two different people. And there'd be two different acceptable prices for those two different people. I would argue that there's actually no such thing as two exact same projects, but that's, but the, the premise in theory is that you could do the exact same engagement and be able to find an acceptable price of, you know, a hundred thousand dollars with couple a and a million dollars with couple B because couple B is just in a different place mentally. Right. Right. Because I mean, that, isn't that the whole point of value based pricing is that it's whatever it's, it's worth to that client. So if somebody right. who is at the upper level, it's worth more to them than it is to somebody at the lower level, then that's what it's worth. Right. And it cuts both ways. Like I've, I've kind of implied that it cuts both ways. If you get someone who you know, doesn't have a lot of money, doesn't value this very much. You can't just put a million dollar price tag on it and expect people to to accept. If you want to work with those people, you need to set prices that are lower than what it's worth to them. So it's not like a license to print money. But if you if you do want to grow your business in this way by getting um, better and better and better and better clients, hourly is only going to scale you so far. Hourly is very linear. But if you're you know, if you can attract wealthier customers or, you know, people who have more buying power, you can scale up in a more exponential way because it's not tied to your time. 
so you could do, you know, I, I can't even estimate with like, I don't know how long projects take in the architecture world, but uh, you can do things much more quickly without cutting corners that satisfy the client all day long and, you know, and not have it tied to your uh, income. You know, you can just price it in a way that they're like, yeah, that was a great value, you know. What, why three numbers? Why are, you, why are you presenting with three different prices? Right. There's a lot of psychology uh, behind this that um, we could go into, but it, you know, it's from retail. It's from, you know, Cialdini's book, Influence. There's three is like some magic number for human beings. 911, stop, drop, and roll. It's like a magic number. Uh, if, you just, if you just use one price, that's an ultimatum. And people are really bad at making decisions in a vacuum, you know, justifying absolute numbers. And listeners, you can test this for yourself just by going to the grocery store or buying anything that you don't normally buy. If you go to buy something and you have no idea how much it costs, the first thing you do is you look for comparisons. So if you don't give the customer something to compare in your proposal, they will find another proposal to compare it to. Right. If you give them a proposal with three questions, uh, three options in it, the question they'll ask is not, should we work with Mark, but in which way should we work with Mark? Which things should we choose? And then they start thinking about the, they don't start think they think less about the absolute dollars of each option, how much each option is going to cost. And they think more about the delta between the numbers. Well, option one is 10,000, option two is 22,000. What do I get for my 12,000? And they start looking at the, the added benefits of the second option thinking, mm, yeah, I really like that. I do want some of those things in option two. And then like, well, what do I get for this? Like, a huge step up from 22 to 50. Like, oh, wow, that is pretty nice. We wouldn't have to do anything. And they would hire all the people and they'd pick out all the stuff and do all the shopping and all of that. Yeah. And then they look at the 50 and they look at the 22 and they say, well, look at how much I could save if I go with the 22. <laughs> so now the yeah, 22. It does drive, yes, it drives the people to option two. Correct. Yeah. Because the 22 looks, looks like a deal. Looks like a deal, even though it's higher, much higher than the lowest price. Right. People want this. Almost everybody wants the second option. It's very common. Anytime you go to buy peanut butter or beer or anything, you're usually not buying the cheapest. You're usually not buying the very most expensive. You're usually buying something in the middle. And presenting three options enables that dynamic. Presenting five or ten options, now you've got decision paralysis and yeah, you're going to lose just them. confuse them. Yeah. And then they don't make any decision. Exactly. So we started off by saying many if most, if not most, of our listeners are working hourly. And now... We've, you've convinced us. We want to move to a, a, a value-based pricing. How do we do that? How do we shift from the hourly-based pricing to a value-based pricing? What's, what, what are some tips on how do, we, how do we make that happen over time? Okay, you start small. <laughs> Don't do a massive project like this at first because you will not do it right. It takes three or four tries through these sorts of sales meetings before the light bulb really goes on. Like you think you get it right now. Like you understand it intellectually. You probably understand it just from me talking. But you won't in the situation, if you've been in business for a year even, you're going to fall into your old habits. You're going to want to know about the scope. You're going to ask about the scope. You're going to forget to ask, why is this so urgent? You're going to forget to ask, what is the perfect world scenario here? If I hit a huge home run for you, what would that look like? You're going to forget some of those questions. You're going to forget to ask them. And then you're going to sit down in front of that proposal and you're not going to have anything to base a value price on and you're going to fall back to cost plus. And you might not even know it. It's weird. It took me a solid year to really do my sales interviews 
in a value-based way. It took me, it took me a solid year. And so start small. It'll be fine. If you start small, do small project. If a, if a client comes through the door with what seems like a small project, it, even if you completely underestimate it, you'll be fine, you know, and you can have that meeting and it'll feel real. And as soon as you sit down to do your work for that client, everything's going to feel different because when the meter's running and you work for three hours, you have this feeling like, ah, I just made three hours worth of money. But when you're on a fixed price basis and you work three hours, you think I just lost three hours worth of money. (laughs) So you start getting good fast and it changes the whole dynamic. So you will, you want to start small. If you're going to switch straight to value pricing from hourly billing, there is another option Two others really, but basically they're productized services. It's a different way to fix price things, you know, fixed scope projects that you publish at a fixed rate and people can come through, you know, lawyers do this with like, you know, single price divorce, you know, divorce is $500 or whatever. And you, I imagine, although I don't have enough experience with architects, I imagine that there is something like that in your world where there's some sort of, you know, maybe it's a, maybe a rendering or a blueprint or some, some deliverable that is extremely helpful to people that it basically, no matter how big the project is, it's going to be the same amount of work for you. So you can just pick a fist pumpingly good price for yourself and say, eh, you know, whatever, a rendering is $10,000 or a fly through with VR is like $15,000. So if you, oh, you want to fly through for an office building, it's $25,000, no hours, no, nothing like that. So if, if it's not tied to time now, all of a sudden, you can create leverage, you can create profit inside of that price because you can get better at doing it faster without cutting corners. And every, every hour that you shave off of the time it takes you to deliver that is more money. So you get, you get paid more to be fast and good instead of getting paid less when you're fast and good. And you, you, when you started talking about the process for value-based pricing, you, you talked about this meeting, and that's really the key, right, is you have yeah. to get that meeting figured out. You need to understand what questions to ask and how do you get the information from your client uh, to understand what, the val- what they do value and then what is the mm-hmm. cost of that value to them. What is it, what is it worth to them? And that's going mm-hmm. to take some time to learn, right? And you're, yes. You're, gonna, you're going to try these questions, and some mm-hmm. of them are going to work and some of them aren't. And so the next time you'll do it a different way. And eventually you'll sort of have a script that's in your head and you'll sort of understand what you need to ask and how do you go through that process to pull that value out. And so that's that I love the idea of sort of just trying it with one. You know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Right. You, you may lose a little yeah. bit on this one because it's a small project or um, but but uh, give it a try and see if it works. And then, you know, and then do it again with another one and another one and another. And eventually you'll be able to shift over with the more confidence that you have, the, the better the process becomes. And, uh, and you'll be, be attracting to... better clients. Yeah. You'll be develop, you have to develop the new habit and you just think of it like an interview. It's not a pitch. It's an interview. You're interviewing them. Act like a doctor. If, if a patient came running in and said, doc, I need a triple bypass. The doctor's not going to say, great, jump up on the table. Let me go get my knives. They're going to say, whoa, 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 hold the phone. What is the symptom? What is the problem? You know, it might turn out the guy only needs an antacid. He might not need a triple bypass. So if you treat, if you act like a doctor in this sales interview, you are interviewing them. Will these people make a good client? It changes the dynamic. You still have to build the habit, ask the why questions, but over time you can do it. You have to, you have to do it a few times, but you will, you will eventually get it if you stick to it. 
So this is this is your world. This hourly, no more hourly billing. You have your podcast. You have a book. Do you have any other resources that if somebody wants to do this and we they've listened, they sort of understand what they want to do, but they they need sort of a step by step. Do you have a book or resource or something that we can uh, grab in order to be able to do this? Sure. Yeah. Best place to go is valuepricingbootcamp.com. And it's a free five-day email course where it drills into these topics, breaks them down one by two by three by four by five. And uh, and it's from my personal email. So if you reply to anything, it goes straight to me. Ask questions. I love answering questions. Um, I need lots of ideas for my daily newsletter. So <laughs> any questions I get are like solid gold to me because then I can use them to answer on the list with your permission, of course. Great. What, what was it? What was that link again? It is valuepricingbootcamp.com. Valuepricingbootcamp.com. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. We'll have that in the show notes. Um, Jonathan, before we wrap things up, I want to ask you the one question that we ask everybody here at Entree Architect Podcast. Mm-hmm. What is one thing a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, this isn't going to surprise anyone who's been listening, <laughs> but I would say separate your time from your money. Time, you don't trade time for money. Figure it out. Whether you use productized services or you use value pricing or some other, or you're just amazing at estimating and you just give fixed prices, it changes everything for the better. It takes some time, so do it slowly. But once you get over that hump, it's unbelievable. The client relationships are so much better. You'll get more referrals. You'll get better customers. It creates a virtuous cycle. So just figure out, take take any one of these tips and figure out how to separate your time from money. It changes everything. Fantastic. His name is Jonathan Stark. You can learn more about him at his website, jonathanstark.com. Jonathan, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, I learned a lot, and I hope others have as well. I'm sure people, because there's a lot of buzz, like I said, not only about you, but about this idea of shifting to value-based pricing. I think mm-hmm. a lot of small firm architects like the idea, especially with the, the, the feelings that you talked about that you have when you start working with that based value-based pricing. So I wanted to uh, thank you for spending some time with me here and shedding some, some light on this topic. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been episode 324. If you'd like access to the show notes where we'll have links to everything we talked about with Jonathan and a link to share, share this episode with a friend. I think this is a really good one to share with a friend. The link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 324, entrearchitect.com slash episode 324. That'll take you to the show notes. It'll take you to a link to subscribe. You can download this episode. It's all there, entrearchitect.com slash episode 324. The restart plan. The restart plan. It's coming to Entree Architect. What's the restart plan? Yeah, it's new. The restart plan is a mindset and a process planned and powered by Entree Architect. It's going to give us the new structure for existing content. We're basing all of our content on the restart plan. And it's also going to help us focus our efforts on creating new content where it's most needed during this time of uncertainty. The first section of the restart plan is going to be finance. Finance is the foundation on which everything else in your business is built. Do you feel like you have control? Do you feel like you have control over your cash flow? Does your financial management system allow you to plan for profit, whether you're working during a time of uncertainty or not? Can you track your progress each and every month? Do you have a clear picture of your your financial health of your firm at any given moment? Are you able to make timely adjustments and make decisions based on real data? That 
is what's going to get us through this time of uncertainty. The ability to make adjustments and make decisions based on what's happening right now in your firm. If you answered no to any of these questions, then you have an opportunity right now to restart. Restart your financial management system and we can help you. Registration is open right now for the Entree Architect P2P Profit Course. Yes, the Profit Course is back. The Entree Architect P2P Profit Course is a step-by-step program to help you build a proven financial management system for your architecture firm. And it's an integral part of the restart plan. If you're interested in learning more about the Profit Course, visit entrearchitect.com slash profit course, entrearchitect.com slash profit course. And you know, we're likely to have a really tough journey ahead as architects. If you've experienced any of the previous recessions, you know that there will be pain. And planning and preparing right now is critical. It's the way we're going to get through this. And the good news is that there is a way through. There are things that we can do right now, today, that will allow us to survive, but maybe even thrive in the near and distant future. There is an opportunity right now. It's time to restart. Visit entrearchitect.com slash profit course to learn more. Love, learn, share what you know. Thanks for listening today, my friends. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long-term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, 
Jeff Eccles, and Katie Kangas as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like, that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.